Patience is a virtue. Not right now it isn't. Nothing says romance like a gift of a kidnapped, injured woman. Life finds a way. So, pretty much touch anything and get your head chopped off. I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Hey Mason, how's it going? Uh, pretty well. How about you? Okay, it's been a bit of a frustrating week. Mm. When you are having a frustrating day or a frustrating week, do you have any particular ways that you like to deal with that? Any particular ways you get yourself in a better mood? Just like try to end the week on a high note? Yeah, video games is actually a great way to do that for me. Kind of the escapism of being in a different world. Exactly. Also, very professional segue. I also like the escapism. And for me, I like to watch people kicking and punching things. Mm, very cathartic. <laughs> so, it's very cathartic. And that is why I'm so happy that we are watching this movie today, because I need to watch somebody kick and punch some things. So you want to tell our audience what movie we're watching today? Yeah, we will be watching the 2001 Laura Croft Tomb Raider, which is excellent for me because I really enjoy episodes like this where I get to do a ton of research on video games, one of my favorite things in the world, and hopefully bring some new insights to the table. And you know, we get to have a discussion about whether or not it should have been made into a film, whether the games themselves <laughs> were good or bad. I've taken time out of my week to play Tomb Raider. And so kind of my job this past week was playing these games and researching this. So yeah, it's going to be really fun. Yeah, I'm super excited because I feel like for this movie, which I've seen many times, but it has been a little while because I only have it on DVD or I did prior mm -hmm. to this. I have my blockbuster purchased copy <laughs> of the DVD of Tomb Raider. Emily, what's a blockbuster? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like Netflix, but physical. Oh, so like Redbox. Like that, but in a whole building. I don't buy it. I don't think that ever existed. <laughs> well, a lot That's... of people didn't, and now we don't have them anymore. <laughs> but I used to absolutely raid the sale bins at mm -hmm. my local Blockbuster, which led to me having a very weird movie collection. I have everything from movies that I really, really wanted like this to movies that I had never seen, but just were cheap. Like Notes on a Scandal yep. is a movie I own on DVD. Okay. <laughs> you <know>? Interesting. <laughs> I know, right? So it's given me lots of throwback feels. Yeah. But I definitely had a period where I watched this movie a lot. I have some like very clear memories of the scenes that I love from it. Mm -hmm. It was my first exposure to Daniel Craig. Yes. I remember being very obsessed with him, but I remember Sybil, still one of my best friends, being weirded out by the fact that I liked this older guy and thought he was so attractive. <laughs> this movie was released in 2001. How old would he have been in 2001? Like, it can't have been that bad of a crush. No, but, like, like, we were barely teenagers. Sure. And she was like, why this guy? She was very into Josh Hartnett at the time, and I was mm -hmm. like, Daniel Craig! Mm -hmm. And Harrison Ford. So I have a lot of nostalgia memories. But, like, a lot of the movies we've been watching, I'm very interested to see how all of that plays out in, like, a fresh rewatch as an adult where I'm really analyzing everything. Also, to your credit... Daniel Craig has definitely aged like a fine wine. Oh, he has. It's actually incredible. Yes. So I think your intuition, even as a teenager, was very good that he was going to go places and also age exceptionally well. Oh, I have amazing taste. <laughs> a few things have made me happier than when he and Rachel Weisz got married. Mm, because I was mm -hmm. like, 
yes, this is the couple that I need to happen. <laughs> the power couple of power couples. <laughs> the power couple of my film fantasy. <laughs> you know, but he's fantastic. I've been a big fan of what he's been doing with Knives Out and Glass Onion, the Benoit Blanc. You know, obviously there's some... Hercule Poirot reference happening there. But like, I am so ready for Ryan Johnson to be my generation's Agatha Christie. Yeah. I'm also very ready for a Poirot-esque character from the bayou, from Louisiana. It's just such a great origin story and everything. I'm very interested in what's to come next. I also loved seeing Hugh Grant in it. (laughs) That is just like, Again, another thing that until I saw it, I didn't know I needed it. But then I saw it and I was like, this is amazing. Please show me more Hugh Grant covered in flour while Mm -hmm. Daniel Craig is in their bathroom with a fez on. Just like video chatting with people in the back. Yes. But that's not the movie we're doing today. (laughs) It is not. (laughs) But we love getting on these tangents. I am going to have so much trouble not just calling it Tomb Raider. So I'm just going to lean into it. So you did mention that you have those iconic sort of moments for you in this movie, what are they? Let's see. I think the way that the film opens is very impactful to me because I didn't really have any background with the character of Laura Croft. And so kind of being brought into this world where she's this extremely confident person that has obvious wealth and resources and is able to train with this personal robot, essentially. Mm -hmm. That was actually probably the biggest impact on me. And That kind of brings me to one of the things that I remember most about this movie, which is Fatboy Slim's Weapon of Choice. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, to our listeners, one thing you may not know about Emily is that she is a master craftsman of playlists. And I do mean it. When we were kids, she was always trying to find the right order, (laughs) the songs that flowed one to the next to create a perfect playlist. And so there was a lot of songs from Tomb Raider, from Mission Impossible 2, from (laughs) what were the other things? Toad the Wet Sprocket. (laughs) Yes, there was a lot of Toad the All over the place. But Emily's a fantastic mixer of playlists. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I did a lot of burning CDs back in those days. I still have mm-hmm. a bunch of them, too. I don't think there's a CD player. Maybe in our 2004 Forerunner. Maybe I'd just go in the car, <laughs> play my old CDs, and just sit in there rocking out to my high school music. But yep. yeah, thank you. I still have quite a few CDs that I found lying around the house that just says, like, Jonathan's Mix. I have no idea what's on it. <laughs> I should really explore that. Yeah, I think Jonathan's mix is going to need to be bonus content. I will personally (laughs) go find that big stack of old CDs and see if I can dredge up a playlist for you as well. Excellent. I do really love good use of music in movies, both from a scoring perspective. And honestly, that could be a whole episode, too. It's just like Mm -hmm. amazing movie scores. But I also particularly love the excellent use of songs on a soundtrack. And Mm -hmm. speaking of my playlists, I have actually several different playlists of that stuff, but I really like the weapon of choice in this. I think for me, that first scene is one of the ones that jumps into my mind. I like when she's coming into the auction house on her motorcycle mm-hmm. scene and then just like flipping the chair around, flopping the boots up. That's a great one. The busting the closet apart to find the clock is another yes. one that jumps to mind. I'm really, really hoping that everything I'm dropping is actually in this movie. <laughs> no, it is. There are lots of like kind of dream sequences as well in this yeah, where she dad. visits with her dad. And then towards the end, well, I don't want to spoil the ending, but there's kind of a climax where they both enter <gasps> yes. this kind of like shadow realm type 
thing. I don't know how to describe it, but we'll get there eventually. We will. Yeah. I mean, I will say though, the one thing that I think most sticks in my memory with this movie isn't exactly a single moment. Even though she is this incredible badass who largely seems separate from people, mm-hmm. she has this little family of her staff. <laughs> In so much as staff can really be family. Yeah. But she really loves Bryce, you know? She really loves her. It's true. Oh, I don't remember. Oh, what is her butler's name? Oof. Oh, I know it. I feel bad. But there were these nice little moments of... It's Hillary, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yep. I mean, like, she might be snarky to them sometimes, but you can also feel, like, the genuine affection come through. And I think that's especially true in the next movie, in The Cradle of Life. But you could definitely see it in this movie, too. And I always really love that, that, like... No matter how much of a badass you are, there's always room for personal affection and the people in your life that you like to tease and take care of. Or, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, (laughs) assuming you get paid enough, you can pretend to like anyone. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a good thesis too. It's like, how much of this are they reciprocating and how much of it is just like this rich bitch is paying us so much money? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a fair question. And that feeling on my part does come from a time when I was more naive, I think. But I think you're right that even though she's asking a lot of these people, they're giving a lot in return and they're along for the ride. Because there are lots of people who, no matter what the price, would not follow you along on these crazy adventures. But Hillary, especially kind of in the face of battle, especially seeing the Croft house being raided is exceptionally calm and ready to go to war with her, essentially. So, yeah, I agree. And that scene, too, where it's like the bungee rain shooting out the, I guess that's a big stained glass skylight or something. And I love the idea of, like, I'm ready for bed. I'm going to go put on some very silky pajamas and Mm -hmm. then go bungeeing around in my living room. And honestly... That does sound amazing. It does. I love that feeling of like floating around, flying around. If you have a massive foyer or what do rich people call those things? I think that's like a great hall type of deal. Sure. If you have a great hall, you can probably afford a bungee apparatus and then going to sleep or getting ready for bed by listening to classical music and flying around your great hall. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Have you ever been bungee jumping? No, I have not. I have, but only at like one of those ones in Gatlinburg where you climb up a tower Mm. and then jump off of it. But I will tell you, it was super fun. I'd be interested in it. I've wanted to go skydiving. I just don't know anybody that would go with me. Yeah. I mean, skydiving makes me a little more anxious because I feel like there's more room for user error. Tie me to something bouncy and throw me off a bridge. I think I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But a plane where like I've got to pull the chute. I mean, of course, equipment failure is possible in both cases. But for some reason, the bungee off a bridge or whatever, that doesn't feel as bad to me because you're tied to it. And maybe Mm -hmm. it snaps. But if it snaps, it's already used a lot of its energy slowing you down, hopefully. Hopefully, question mark? Hopefully, question mark. Or possibly it didn't slow down and then you don't have to die a slow, painful death. You can <laughs> That's just right. Wait. It was so fast. You didn't realize what the equipment <laughs> failure was and uh, it doesn't matter yeah. anymore. And that's another thing, too. With this bungee scene in the house, there's a lot of marble in that house. She could yes. so easily splat. And that's another thing. We know how skilled she is. She would never splat. But it seems risky. <laughs> True. There's a lot of great stunts in this movie. Once we have watched it, I'm very curious to go back and learn more about the stunt work because in the second one of these in Cradle of Life, 
there is a jet ski stunt that is so obviously done by a by large a man, man oh, who yeah. did not feel at all compelled to shave his legs nope. in order to play a woman in a huge budget movie. I'm pretty sure the only thing that was done to make him look like Lara Croft was the attachment of a ponytail to whatever hair he already had. And that one has always kind of bothered me because I have a lot of trouble believing that there is not a female stunt person who could have done that. Right. Because the body is just so obvious. So I'm very curious to see, like, with this movie, I'm going to be watching very carefully when we have a major stunt that may be involving a stunt performer. Who is that person? <laughs> is it a woman? <laughs> you know? And I have no problem. You know, like, if you can put a wig on somebody and have them do a stunt and I can't tell, then great. That's movie magic to some extent. That's yeah. movie magic. But if it's somebody who's got 100 pounds on her and couldn't be bothered to shave his legs and I can see it because he's wearing a bikini. Yeah. That bothers me. <laughs> I think another thing I'm going to really pay close attention to is the set design, set decoration, because I remember it being very video gamey at certain points. And then like less so at others, like that first scene that you're mentioning feels very video gamey. What makes a shot or a scene feel video gamey to you? Probably the lighting has a lot to do with it. Okay. And I think the quality of the surfaces, like how textured I mean, I don't know, like, that's kind of a part of what I want to go back and see, you know, was I just picking up on like, hey, I know that this came from a video game, and this looks like video game scenes. So that's why I'm associating it. But I do feel like part of what makes something look video gamey, and we can go back to kind of Uncharted and look at like that scene where they're in that subterranean area with those big salt containers, Mm -hmm. the way the light from those torches is diffusing, right? There's almost a smoky quality to the air that's catching light in a certain way. Mm -hmm. In this movie, I'm thinking of a lot of gold-toned, I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to describe without putting it on a set designer is the props feel fake. That's fair. (laughs) I think that video games have, first of all, come a long way, but I think the texturing is actually a really poignant thing to call out. Because if you're seeing something that is kind of intended to be destroyed, and it's something that looks like it was designed as part of a level, not as part of an environment, you might be able to pick up on that subconsciously. So I think that's a very fair call out. And it's something that I'm going to be paying attention to as well. So in 1996, the first Tomb Raider game was released. It had been in development for about three years There was a six-man team called Core Design that was acquired by Eidos, which is a publisher. And so they had this brainchild for about three years working on it. Originally, it had, interestingly enough, a man with a whip. Hey. Who knows where that could have come from, but... (laughs) No, it... In 1996, there had already been, and I looked this up, 12 Indiana Jones games already produced at this point. And so... (laughs) Somebody advised them like, hey, mm, maybe you don't want to be sued and don't want to be in the same market as these Indiana Jones games. So how about we rethink the main character? And so they settled on Laura Croft. And right from the get go, we have her as this extremely confident, charismatic adventurer who's in it for kind of the joy of the hunt, not necessarily the money. I have never played the game, but I have seen many images of the original game. Mm-hmm. And kind of all I really know about it is that her boobs were basically two giant pixels. Mm-hmm. They're not fully square, but they're like almost square. No, they come to a razor sharp point. 
<laughs> about a foot away from her chest. Yeah. It's very interesting. That's what I remember from the game. Yes. And of course, with the movie, they did keep the big boobies, but it's not that egregious, I don't feel like, in the movie. Interestingly, the creator of the character, Lara Croft, left right around the time the first game was released and it had hit kind of this commercial success and people were looking for what is the next iteration of this. And marketing teams were going overboard with the sexualization aspect of it. And the creator was like, if this is where you're going to take my character, I'm out. You know, like, I didn't approve this. I was the one that kind of came up with this idea. You've turned it into something it was never intended to be. I got to go. So Toby Gard left in, I think, 1996 or 1997. And at that point, the game cycle increased very quickly. So you remember how the first game took about three years to develop between 93 and 96. Mm -hmm. The next one was 97. Then the next one was 98. The next one was 99. So like they were coming out with new games pretty much every year and burning that team out. So by 99, when they've now done the original Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider 2, Tomb Raider 3, they start work on Tomb Raider Revolution, which the developers plan to be Laura Croft's final game. But they did not tell anybody that that was the case. And the marketing teams, the publishers, everybody that had been making so much money off of this would have never agreed to this knowing that they were planning to kill off Laura Croft. So... That is actually what happened, and she dies towards the end of the game. Spoiler. Towards the, the end? What happens after that? No, no, no. At the end, her mentor <laughs> attempts to save her from dying, and it's kind of left ambiguous, but the intent of the developers was that she died in a collapsing pyramid. And so they thought, hey, we won the battle. We now get to work on something else. No, no, no. 2000 comes around and suddenly we are doing all of the stories about her childhood. There's kind of like a Scooby-Doo-esque adventure where she's a kid (laughs) fighting off ghosts and ghouls. Sure. It's really interesting. And then there are other unexplored adventures that Laura Croft has been on that weren't in any of the other games, but they decided like, hey, we have content here and we can make this into a game. And it was from everything I've seen, very uninspired and not a good continuation of the series. That was in 2000. And the reason that I stopped there is because 2001 is the debut of this movie. And so I wanted to kind of hit the highlights of what happened up until this movie from the video game perspective. But there's a lot that comes after it that we will probably cover when we do the 2018 Tomb Raider which is a big redefinition of who Laura Croft is. Yes, and a small redefinition of certain assets of hers. (laughs) In a good way, in a positive way. Listen. (laughs) Since McGee had to go. Mm -hmm. No, I had heard that, actually, that her original creator was really not happy with the direction that they were taking her. And I mean, you know, good for you, dude. It is interesting knowing that they went into this movie coming from this place of like, how much money can we make off of this character? Yeah. But I'm not going to let the sheer cash grab of it spoil it for me because Mm -hmm. I just want more adventure movies. Generally, I like having more adventure movies with female leads just because it's easier to project myself into it. It's nice. It is. I also, speaking of Uncharted, were we speaking of Uncharted? Earlier, yeah. Okay. Much Before. earlier, we were yeah. speaking of Uncharted, and now also I'm going to call day, back to that. Also, the other day, a whole other episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> 
Speaking of Uncharted, I do feel like the movies came at such different points in the video game industry that I will be judging them differently because there were so many cinematic elements to Uncharted the video game that were kind of mirrored in the movie versus the video game version of Tomb Raider, which didn't have many of the same elements. There were some, I would say, inventive pieces to the Tomb Raider video games visually. Like there was a dolly zoom, which I was really surprised by when I was playing that first 1996 game to see in a 3D space somebody attempting to recreate a dolly zoom, which hopefully our listeners understand is kind of the concept that the camera is moving towards the subject while the camera is zooming out at the same time. And it creates this very interesting parallax effect where there's kind of a shortening or lengthening of the background in comparison to the character in the center of the frame staying the same size. So it's a really interesting technique that's used in, I think, famously Jaws and... Vertigo, I think, was the Vertigo. first case, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And so to see that shown in a video game from this time was really surprising, but it's not quite on the same level of Uncharted and storytelling and yeah. all of that, which then got turned into a movie that, uh, debatable <laughs> <laughs> as to whether or not yeah. it needed to be made. It's so fun to see. But following the history of the video games, where we left off in 2000 to see the movie, I actually feel like it advances it rather than regresses yeah. it or takes away from the original games. Yeah, interesting. That was a lot, and I apologize, but... No, you're good. When I do this much research, I need to validate it by telling everybody. <laughs> <laughs> see, look, we're using it. I'm using it all the time. Yes, yes. Done it. Please, I wrote so many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think about what else should I be remembering from this movie. I remember the scene in her garage where she loads up a... What is that gun? It's like an air gun, basically, but like with a wrench and is shooting people and oh, like yeah. all the cars. And I love all the cars. That's another thing, too. Mm -hmm. Our dad is a big car guy. And, you know, we grew up with a lot of exposure. So I always enjoy it when there are fun vehicles in a movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that is from the games, too. She has motorcycles that she accesses all the time during the video games. You know, this also reminded me of one thing. I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember back, well, you were probably in middle school and I was in high school or some variation of that. There was a spirit day at school where we dressed up as like a superhero, I think it was. And I went as Lara Croft. Yes, I do remember that. I had the worst Lara Croft costume possibly ever, as it was a pair of boot cut black pants from like Express, like mm -hmm. business pants. But they were the only black pants I had. And then I improvised like a thigh holster. Mm -hmm. And then I just wore like a black, not tank top, because that sounds cute. But, like, but it would not have been sleeveless... allowed at our school, yeah, by the way. Not been allowed at our <laughs> school. Would not have passed. Yeah, whatever, like black three-quarter sleeve shirt that I could find. And then, of course, I have long, dark hair. And so I put it up in that braid. But basically, it's just me wearing a black shirt and black pants with a ponytail braid and then a improvised thigh holster. And this was my Lara Croft costume. Was that the same year that I went as Link from Legend of Zelda? <laughs> or was that a different year? <laughs> Maybe it was. And that's the only thing that I remember dressing up as for like a spirit day type thing. I went as Poison Ivy another year. Mm -hmm. Also, very bad version of the costume. I had a t-shirt from Old Navy that had 
leaves on it that kind of looks like poison ivy. And then I sort of did my hair funny. I was not mastering the costumes at that point. So I really hope that pictures of this still exist. Do they? They do. They do. Well, hmm. the poison ivy one at least does. I don't hmm. know if there's a... Yeah, I'll find it. I'll put it... Okay. I want to see this. <laughs> I don't know if the Tomb Raider one does, but how about this? If I can't find a picture of me in the quote Tomb Raider costume, I'll put on black pants and a black shirt and take a picture of myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll see what it looks like. <laughs> yeah. So just like with Lone Kiska Night, I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be a badass. I wanted to dress up like every female badass, including the villains, apparently. That was a very single-minded teenager. So at this point, we've given a lot of background on our most memorable moments and the video game history, things like that. Are you ready to watch this movie? So ready. All right. Well, we will see you back shortly. My father once told me of a magical triangle stamped the all-seeing eye. He said it gave its possessor extraordinary power, the power to control time. He called it the Triangle of Light. The triangle gives its possessor the power of God. Help me and you will get what I know you want, to have your father return to you. What do you say? You're seeing I. It seems we are running out of time. We have a single opportunity to retrieve the triangle. Turn the iron to the stone's embrace to receive the gift of heaven as you are condemned in the depths of hell. Ah, oh, Mason. Yes. We have watched Lara Croft Tomb Raider. How you feeling? I enjoyed it again for the, I don't know how many th- time. One millionth time. <laughs> right. But I feel like I did see it with different eyes this time, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious about you as well. I think just to kind of get a little metagamey here, the act <laughs> of watching something now that we are reviewing it versus watching it purely for enjoyment, you pick up on different things, and both of us took, I think, copious notes during the movie of things we wanted to talk about, which kind of takes you out of that enjoyment space, you know, just watching it to consume it. And so I'm really curious what you came up with. I wrote down a lot of stuff as well. So what do you got? Well, I had a similar experience where I was kind of seeing it through different eyes. And I did take a ton of notes. And then I did a bunch of research after Mm. as well. And so I'm excited to kind of get into more about how the film was made, how it came together. It was a hot mess getting made. I can imagine that, actually. (laughs) Yeah. The fact that it came into a cohesive movie Whatever criticisms we may have of that movie is kind of amazing. Okay. But before we get into all of that, I have written a plot summary. Hit me with that shit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I will. So, here we go. We open in what looks like an Egyptian tomb, with Laura hanging upside down like a sexy bat. She's fighting a... (laughs) Ignore my laughs. For our listeners, this is the first time I'm hearing this as well, and I love it. Yes. I write these, and then I just dump them on him. Okay, she's fighting a killer robot that's trying to cut her head off, but she shoots it to death and looks like a badass doing it. Turns out, this is just an afternoon workout for Lara, and she's in a training area of my dream home, Croft Manor. We meet Bryce and Hillary, her paid family. Bryce is a tech guy, and Hillary is a butler, but there seems to be affection both ways, so good for them for having a positive work environment. In faraway Venice, the Illuminati are after the Triangle of Light, an ancient artifact that will allow them to control time. Smarmy Jr. member Manfred Powell is leading the hunt, 
and an upcoming planetary alignment is the key to finding the two pieces of the triangle. He promises them that he's almost got it, but he actually has no idea. Back at Croft Manor, Laura is having a dream about her dead dad. She wakes up to a mysterious ticking and finds a clock hidden in a wall. She awakens Bryce and Hillary, and they discover an ancient clock-like artifact with a glowing eye. She changes into her biker gear and goes to see a friend of her dad's at an auction house, where she also runs into hot but morally gray former lover Alex West. Papa Croft's friend, Mr. Wilson, puts Laura in touch with Manfred Powell, and she goes over to his home-slash-office-slash-Turkish bazaar, where he flirts and lies about (laughs) recognizing the clock. Laura is not fooled and goes home to tell Bryce every lame thing that Powell said. This is possibly my favorite moment in the movie where we realize that she had just gone back and been like, Bryce, and he said this, and he said this, and he said this, and he said that his ignorance amuses him. Yes. (laughs) It's like my favorite piece. Later that night, she's doing her usual bedtime routine of bungee ballet when commandos break into her house to try to steal the clock. She tries to fight them off, but they take it and leave. In the morning, when her paid family is cleaning up her mess, a package arrives from her father, care of lawyers who were told to deliver it on this date. It contains a clue that points her to a note hidden in a book. The clock is the key to finding the triangle, which has been broken into two halves and hidden in Cambodia and Siberia. Papa Croft says she must find and destroy both pieces before the Illuminati can get to them. So Laura calls in some old army buddies to fly her in her Land Rover to anchor in Cambodia. But Powell and West, gasp, are already there, along with commandos and a whole bunch of local laborers who'd better be getting paid well. Once they're in, Laura points out that they're all stupid and convinces Powell to give her the clock so they can get the piece, even though putting it off for another 5,000 years seems like a solid option, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. She gets the piece, but the statues come to life and chase them away. Laura escapes and heads to a monastery to recover, while Powell gets a massage. <laughs> but to discover... Self-care is important. No, self-care is important, even in these types of scenarios. It's always important to take a moment to have an Asian woman walk on your back, even when you're being a villain. You know what? Being an evil henchman of the Illuminati is pretty exhausting and stressful work. So, you know, take time. Take the time you need. Okay, so, to destroy the triangle, she must get to the other piece. Back in Venice, Powell tells Laura that her father was his mentor in the Illuminati and tempts her with seeing her dad again. She accepts Powell's offer to partner up, but only to get the triangle. Bryce in tow, Laura travels to Siberia with Powell and Alex West, who is keeping it point. <laughs> they, f- <laughs> they find the chamber, and the second piece is hidden in a big steampunk model of the solar system. After some acrobatics... Laura gets the second half of the triangle, but the halves will not fuse, and Powell kills Daniel Craig to motivate her to figure it out. She does, and manages to grab the triangle herself. Suddenly, we're in a tent with her dad, who talks her out of saving him and into destroying the triangle for good. She goes back, saves West, destroys the triangle, kills Powell, and gets the fuck out of Dodge as the whole chamber collapses around her. Back home, she celebrates her victory by putting on a dress she hates, visiting her father's memorial, and then going in for another round with the murder robot. The end. The end. And as I was listening to that, and as I was watching the movie the first time, and then the second time, because I did go back and watch it again. <laughs> did you really? I did. And this is actually one of the things I wanted to bring up, is going back and watching it again after you and I have seen it, fair game, or do you feel like watching it in a different light than us together changes the tone of things? Because I could go yeah. back and like cherry pick and nitpick things that I want to talk about, but that may kind of betray the notes that we took together while we were watching it. Okay. I'm fine with it. You do you, boy. Okay. Like, watch whatever you want to watch after. All right. 
I have watched many clips again, so. If you were confused at all by some of the things that came out of Emily's mouth just then, <laughs> that's fair, because it is kind of a confusing plot, and there are things that happen at certain times that feel arbitrary. Why couldn't she have just delayed this? Why couldn't she have just kept the Illuminati from completing their plan versus having the alternate motivation of getting this for herself and then destroying it again? It gets a little muddy in there. Well, I think there's a major plot hole, which is that in order to destroy something that's already in pieces, you don't have to destroy both pieces. One would think. (laughs) Once she has the first piece, all she has to do is destroy the first piece. The question, though, is... I think a person could push back and say, well, this is a magical artifact. And when she does finally destroy it, it's all together. And then it like explodes in an explosion of light. So maybe there's some mystical thing, but I don't know. Seems like it could be a plot hole. One could also say that she was tempted by the power of the artifact to bring back her dad, which I think is hinted at, but never really explored fully. I mean, she's gone through the grieving process for him already. I would be surprised if she were to say, yes, bringing this artifact back into the world is a good trade-off for having him back in my life or something like that. I don't know. But they don't really explicitly say that's her motivation and that's why she wants to be doing this. They just kind of let it ride. Yeah, there are some continuity things. There are some plot hole things. And this kind of ties into the production side of it all. And I know we're starting off this episode with a lot of just me (laughs) reading things, but... I did want to share something with you. I think you'll think it's interesting. Okay. I took a journal entry when I saw this movie the first time. <gasps> you I did. did? I did. Oh, my so, goodness. I actually suspect this will come up again. I have written about many, many movies in my journals over the years. Okay. To the point that you're like, okay, you're 10. Why is this something that features heavily? I mean, starting pretty early on, I'll have to go back and find the earliest movie reference because I do have journals from, I think they start in 1994. Wow. But there are movies name dropped throughout them. Mm -hmm. So this journal entry is from July 14th, 2001. I saw this in a theater in Mexico because I was at that time. So for our listeners, I did a Rotary Club exchange program where I went to Mexico as a teenager. And then the family I stayed with, who was fantastic and just couldn't have gotten any luckier there, actually had twin daughters. And one came back and spent some time with us that same summer. And then the next year, the other one. And that's Mari and Adriana. So this happened when I was in Mexico. And here's the journal entry. It's in its complete state. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm so excited. You're going to have to bear with me being a little dorky. How old would I have been? God, I don't know. 15? Okay. Today we went to breakfast. To the mall. Boring. Then to the beach where I swam and was buried in the sand up to my neck. And made me fins. That must be a typo. My tail was green. They covered it in seaweed and gave me a stylish top, too. It felt really good. I took a shower. Then we got ready to go to the movies. I ate a crepe with honey, crepe con miel, and a strawberry slushie. Tonight's choice of entertainment was Tomb Raider with Angelina Jolie. The guy who played her, quote, love interest, Alex West, was incredibly handsome. So hot. Oh, my. (laughs) I wrote all of that out. (laughs) I believe it. But then we go into, I'm so proud of myself. It was a fun movie to watch. The effects were done by ILM, which of course is Industrial Light and Magic of George Lucas. Mm -hmm. It was truly a fun movie. End of entry. There you go. And it was. It was a fun entry. And (laughs) if you haven't seen the bonus content where Emily and I watched this movie together, there was still a lot of talk about how hot Alex West is. (laughs) 
in that <laughs> film. Yes. And how much yeah, we love him. So. Yep, 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 yep. So, I mean, my two big takeaways really were that Daniel Craig is attractive and that ILM did the effects. Yes. <laughs> so, not an in-depth analysis, but I thought you'd want to hear that. I'm so happy that you broke that out for the <laughs> podcast. And when you say things like, I don't know why movies featured so prominently in my journal entries, it's because it was all leading up to this. It was all yeah. leading up to this podcast. My life finally makes sense. <laughs> So as far as like other first thoughts, just as just sort of miscellaneous stuff, there's so much accurate throwing and catching in this movie. Mm -hmm. We're throwing the clock back and forth a lot. It's always perfectly seamless. As someone who is kind of a klutz, I am envious of that. Just magnetic, like I throw it from my hand, it goes straight to your hands. No mistakes, mm -hmm. especially in these high stakes scenarios. So I noticed that. Right. And that's something that I wanted to call out as well is that I would say the precision of Laura Croft and the people around her is so high that it almost actually infringes on the ability to believe that she's in danger at any given point in yeah. time. And I think that she's was too capable. Right. That was one of the criticisms that I had read as well as, you know, people didn't really buy this movie because she was never in danger. She was so confident. She was so capable. She was so all these things beautiful <laughs> that, that like mm -hmm. it was hard for people to really empathize with her or kind of see themselves in her, which is one of the things we love about adventure movies. Yeah. I think the thing that saves it for me and makes her still somebody that you can sort of project yourself onto is that she does actually express emotion. Mm -hmm. She expresses her sadness over her father, her friendship with her staff. She gets frustrated I really love that she seems to enjoy what she's doing. She'll mm -hmm. smile and laugh while she's doing these crazy things. So I think if it weren't for that, then it really, really would be hard yeah. to see her as a person. There is a point where Alex West, Daniel Craig, does say, Laura's in it for the glory, and you know I'm in it for the money. And I don't know that that's actually true. I think he may yeah. be misreading her in saying that she's in it for the glory. I think she's in it for... The good times. Yeah, the thrill of the chase, the unknown, the exploration, all those things, which is actually something that I wanted to touch on. One of the criticisms of the game is that it shifts from a perspective of being with Laura in very solitary environments to her being in very, like, action scenarios. And that was one of the things that I picked up on in this movie as well, is that there's a ton of action it's hard to say that it skews more adventure than action. I think it does, but it's very close to 50-50. And a lot of that comes from the external influences. So in the games, she is equipped with pistols and uses them to fight off bats and wolves and bears. Oh my! And mutants and dinosaurs and all that type of stuff. Spoilers for the games. <laughs> but in this movie, there is just constant action. You don't really feel that solitude. You don't feel the exploration vibe as much, except for in very specific moments. And so that was one thing that I felt is that I don't know how much of my impression of it is skewed by the fact that there's just always something happening. It is always loud, gunfire all the time type things. Those moments are few and far between. We get some of it with that mystical child scene mm -hmm. where she's alone in the ruins of the temple and she's kind of exploring. But that's what, I don't know, two minutes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I don't know that it's valid, but it's interesting. <laughs> It is. I think it is valid. I mean, there's not a lot of alone time. Whether that was intentional, whether that's something that fans of the game miss, I don't know, but I think it's a valid observation. Another valid observation, the accents are so bad. Oh, very bad. 
Very, very bad. I love Daniel Craig, and he has since mastered many accents. Yes. But in this one, it was very apparent and very distracting. Yeah. You know, this might be a good time, too, to kind of go through where they are in their careers. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Angelina Jolie had done a number of substantial movies at this point. Daniel Craig really had not. He'd done a lot of TV work early in his career, actually including an episode of The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which I feel like we have got to do a special episode watching that. I agree. But this was his first big movie and the first movie in his IMDb history that I've even heard of. And then just like a short five years later, Casino Royale comes out. Mm -hmm. So he goes from working, but working at a certain level for quite a while. I mean, he'd been working for a long time, but hadn't really broken. And then this, and then he's Bond, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Angelina Jolie, her first credit is like 84. So she must have been like a little baby. And she was credited as Angelina Jolie Voight. So I think this was probably prior to anything we would consider her career. But her first big movie is Hackers in 95. Mm -hmm. Then we get Gia in 98. Then Girl Interrupted in 99. Gone in 60 Seconds in 2000. And then when she shot this movie, she had just shot Original Sin in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So she shot Original Sin in February to April of 2000. And then shot this movie, I think it was June to November or something. So she's moving along. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This is like right in the middle of the curve, the upward swing where she had been, I guess, discovered or starting to be appreciated Mm -hmm. and is finally kind of finding her stride as an actress. This is her moment. Yeah. We're in the middle of Angelina Jolie's moment when we get this movie. And I'm so glad that it was Angelina Jolie because reading about some of the other people that were considered (laughs) for the role, including Pamela Anderson, Jerry Ryan, who would have been probably great, as well as Demi Moore, who would have brought a very different attitude to it, I think. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we ended up with Angelina Jolie, and I think it was a good choice. And even though those people were considered for the role, the director basically said, In his mind, the role only ever belonged to Angelina. (laughs) I am pretty sure that every woman in Hollywood has been name-dropped in relation to this. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So here's the list that I came up with of people who actively turned it down. Oh, okay. Denise Richards, Charlize Theron, Uma Thurman, and Liv Tyler all turned it down. Turned it down? Yes. Wait, so then how... That seems contradictory to... I know it does, okay. and I have some thoughts oh, Okay, about okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, not to shut you down. No, sorry. please. <laughs> I'm really curious where this is going. So, then there also are other actresses who auditioned and did not get the role, including Charisma Carpenter, Feruza Balk, Kirsten Dunst, Rona Mitra, who actually served as a Tomb Raider live model for events, and Mila Jovovich. Mm-hmm. And then the list of, like, name drops, you know, people who were considered or thought about... This type of reporting, if I say, I think, oh my God, I can't think of any actresses. (laughs) (laughs) Judy Dench would be great for this movie. And then you're an entertainment reporter. You can say like, oh, Judy Dench has been mentioned in relation to this Mm -hmm. or whatever. Like, I don't know what the rules are around this stuff. As a casting director, the thought entered your head that maybe this person would be okay. And then you dismiss that thought. And now they are forever attached to it. Yeah. Charisma Carpenter is really interesting, though, as a big Buffy fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see some of these people, less so others. I do think that they got the casting right. And to your point, how can the director say, I only ever wanted Angelina, but then we have five actresses who turned it down? Right. I think this goes back to the development schedule and the studio stuff. And just, you know, I think when he came on board, he was like, this is who I want. But... Mm. 
I think he was not the first person to approach an actress about this. Because, you know, often a studio will be developing something and they'll come to a director with like, here, we've already got the person. True. So if we want to get right into it with the hot mess of this production, I'll try to keep it linked. I'm ready for it. Yeah. Oh, man. There were lots of drafts of the script, lots of different writers attached, several directors attached, a whole bunch of funding weirdness. They had several different people doing the score only to scrap all of those and then have somebody write a score for the movie in literally 10 days. It is all over the place. I feel like we do kind of get a sense of that, too, in terms yes. of the movie isn't really scored so much as it feels like a series of songs that are put together to make a movie. <laughs> well, when you only have 10 days. Right, exactly. I mean, they even had Danny Elfman do the main theme. They had the guy from some of the scoring for the games involved. And then they were dropped and this other guy was there and then he was dropped. And So would that have been Nathan McCree? Do you know? Yes. Okay. Nathan McCree would have been the one who was the guy who had done some of right. the games and then right. got skedaddled. I don't know. And that's so sad, too, because I feel like in a lot of games that are adapted, kind of keeping that original score and then kind of embellishing on it or, you know, making it its own cinematic theme works really effectively. And so I would have liked to see the original music yeah. be more incorporated into it because, like I said, I really like that Tomb Raider theme and feel like it could have worked really well for the movies too. Yeah. Lots of mysteries. Okay. They started shooting without a script, which is something that really irritated Daniel Craig. I can imagine. <laughs> More on that later. <laughs> that would frustrate everybody, I think. What do you even shoot? Variations. That's what he said. Just different lines, different ideas about scene. So the director of this film is Simon West. He shot principal photography. And then he was removed from working on the film in post due to some problems that he was having with Paramount. Unknown problems. Mm. I would love to know what they were. But they did bring him back because they had to do substantial reshoots. So he directed the principal photography. He directed the reshoots. He was not involved in the final edit of this film. He has mm. cut an edit of his own that was never released. Actually, I guess technically two, because his initial cut was kind of when they removed him. They were like... This pile of crap is 130 minutes long. We can't have that. But then later he was like, I'm going to release my final edit. And <sighs> I would actually love to see that. I know. If right? anybody has it, please contact us at theadventurelist.com. Yeah. You don't. I understand if it that, makes but... you feel more comfortable, burn it to a DVD on a public computer, mm -hmm. mail it to us, and we'll never tell anyone that you did it. Correct. So after initial photography, we have a hot mess of a movie. The studio which is Paramount, brings in an editor named Stuart Baird, who is well known for being Mr. Fix-It. Mm. So the studio brings him in to help kind of go through all of this and try to pull it into a cohesive movie. He was promised the job of directing Star Trek Nemesis in exchange for re-editing this movie and also John Woo's original cut of Mission Impossible yeah. 2. So they were I like, hey, we have Lara Croft Tomb Raider. We have Mission Impossible 2. They are both unworkable. If you fix them, we will let you direct a movie. <laughs> so I read that as well. And I read it the other way where he was like, fine, I'll fix your mess. But I get a directing role. <laughs> I mean, either way, the way that I read it was ambiguous about whether mm -hmm. that was his price or whether they offered it to him. I would just love that as a baller move of like, I will save two of your biggest budget movies and propel my career yes. forward through directing. 
And now that's how we have the ever more famous director Stuart Baird. Not <laughs> Fair. something I need to go back and look at is like how did that go for him?、Mm-hmm. Listen, just because I'm not familiar with him as a director does not mean he's not an amazing director.、Yeah. I just wanted to make a snarky comment. Speaking of budget. For this movie is 115 million dollars. The total worldwide box was 274.7 million.、Hmm. We did okay. Yeah. 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 So it was up against at the time the first Harry Potter movie, Shrek, and The Fellowship of the Ring. Okay. So it took in some money, even though it was up against some pretty big movies that, of course, have done extremely well. So it did okay. <laughs> as far as reviews,、uh, I mean, listen. Here's how I would summarize all of the reviews that I've read. The movie isn't awesome, but we like Angie. Yep, that pretty much is everybody's response. Mostly negative reviews from critics, but she pretty consistently got praised for her performance.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though I did also read that she was nominated for a Razzie, I've read that as well. Which I was a little bit confused by because of all the things you could criticize in this movie. I don't think she did a bad job of acting. The accent is not good,、mm-hmm. but it's also. Not the worst I've heard. I mean, if accents are a big deal to you, especially if you're British, let's say, and you're hearing an American bastardization your of your accent. accent, you know, like <laughs> I can understand it just grating and grating and grating. In the same way that Daniel Craig doing an American accent for us is just like, oh, buddy, oh gosh. And this is a problem that I have. So I love Daniel Craig, and I will stand by him. He has talked about how much he did not enjoy making this movie.、Mm-hmm. I've got a quote from him. So, didn't enjoy shooting. Was irritated that they started shooting without a script because he's a serious actor. He chose not to come back for the second one.、Mm-hmm. In an interview with the Telegraph, he said, "I didn't enjoy making Tomb Raider at all. I hated it. I did it to get a profile, and it didn't turn out like that. You're working on scenes that make no sense whatsoever. I can't do that superhero stuff." And then he went on to become Bond. So, part of me is like, "You're not wrong, Daniel." The other part of me is like, "Okay, but what was under your control?" Was that fucking terrible accent?、Yeah. Like, you don't have a script. Okay, work on the accent. That's、mm-hmm. under, it's under your control. Now, I also feel like maybe because I have such high expectations of him, maybe the accent's not that bad, and I am just seeing it as really bad because I know how good he can be. Yeah, please write into us about this because it is actually that bad for me. <laughs> Upon every watch and rewatch, it does bother me. But one of the things that I want to say is that actors really only get a specific amount of time in a day. I mean, like anybody, right? You get a specific、yeah. amount of time in the day, and if you're on a chaotic set or you've been brought into a movie where they're trying to do shoots without a script, you may not have the time to spend with a language coach to do that, and you must. In some situations, just wing it, and so I don't want to necessarily say it's that bad because he didn't spend time on it. Versus, he had a limited amount of time. They may have been asking way too much of him, and this is a result of the chaos in production. Yeah, I mean that very well may be the case, and I'll give him any pass I can find to give him. But I did want to just say, like, I hear you, bro. Parts of this were under your yes. control. <laughs> yes, yes. You know. But speaking of their preparation. A little bit about their training. So Angelina Jolie, who hereafter will be known as Angie, like she's my BFF, even though、okay. I have never met her. She did a significant amount of training for this. I think it was a DVD special feature that I found on YouTube referred to it as six months of training. She has、mm-hmm. several times said that she came to London and then did two point five. <laughs> I did two point five months of training in London. That's what I would say. 
She had been married to Billy Bob for one week mm-hmm. and <laughs> moved to London to do the training for this. All kinds of training. She did weapons training with the SAS. Mm-hmm. She did yoga. She did weight training, kickboxing. They did a very street fighting style of like combination of different fighting styles. She did motorcycle training, dog racing training, gymnastics, and canoeing. <laughs> <Training>. Okay. <laughs> Maybe so, the canoeing is in the extended cut. No, it's when she's in Cambodia on the river. That's like paddling for 10 seconds. I know. Okay, fine. I was thinking about like river rapids canoeing. Apparently they felt like they needed to train her for that. She needed to be trained to push. Yeah, it didn't look that okay. good either, I'll be okay. honest. <laughs> you know, and then of course they did a lot of specialized training for like specific movements that Lara does in the games. Mm-hmm. Things that no one would ever learn how to do unless you were trying to be Lara Croft. Yeah. One of the producers, Lloyd Levin, compared her training to learning to perform at the level of an Olympic athlete. And I liked this quote. He said, we turned her into something that you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd still like to meet her in a dark alley. but I mean, he did actually add that. <laughs> for, for <laughs> and she said, too, you know, the person who's training me to fight is an actual fighter. Like, they're not training me in stage fighting. They're training me in the disciplines that they want to see on screen. So it does actually sound like she could really kick your ass. I believe that that's true. One thing that I'm just now realizing is I want to see those two approaches to screen fighting side by side. I want to see somebody who is an actual fighter who has been trained correctly fight on screen. And then I want to see somebody who has been trained for screen fighting to fight kind of side by side, like using the same choreography or the same, you know, fight scene, but with different styles. If only. And I'm probably being completely unreasonable here, but I feel like I'd be able to tell the difference and that I would appreciate the real fighting more, but I don't know. Well, this sounds testable. It does sound testable. Because there are two of us. Oh, you want one of us to take screen fighting lessons and the other to take real fighting lessons? Yes. I'll do it. I want to do real fighting. I'll do screen fighting. Okay, that's a plan. I would love to do that. Also, (laughs) the approach that they took training Lara... (laughs) was very different from the approach that they took with Daniel Craig, which was, it sounds like, non-existent. He said, (laughs) and I quote, Take your shirt off, nobody will care. Yeah, this is his quote that I found for him about his training. I just tried to get in shape. (laughs) Oh boy, he did. Oh, he was in shape. Sure did. Yes, like I said earlier, tweet. Tweet. Yeah, so he just tried to get in shape. And then in that same interview, he also said, like, on these sets, you just felt like you were on an adventure playground, which sounds amazing. And mm-hmm. an adventure playground is a thing I would love to play on. Name of our production company, Adventure Playground. Ooh, I like it. I also liked, and this is an idea that you had during our watch, that we should just name ourselves Shadow Corp, Inc. Yes, Shadow Corporation <laughs> like- Incorporated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is true. So here's something that I did want to bring up and that, I don't want to spend a ton of time on, but I do want to address it, is cultures in this film. Mm, So one of the things that I think we could praise this movie for is shooting on location in Cambodia for the first time since 1965. Hollywood had stayed out of that area and had really not given it a second chance since the filming of Lord Lord Jim. Jim. Right. So I think it's great that they took that chance to do that rather than build sets or find the cheapest location. However, there are also a lot of elements that we would probably read as disrespectful or disingenuine to the cultures that are represented in the film. How do you interpret those things and how does it color your image of the film? Yeah, it is weirdly bifurcated Mm -hmm. in this way. Because on the one hand, you have some things that were done with intention 
especially in Cambodia, the use of locations. Also, one thing that we commented on during the movie was to what degree are these <laughs> statues that are attacking them based on real iconography? Mm-hmm. And the answer is more than you'd think. Especially the monkeys, they base those on temple guardians that were actually, you know, outside of. I read that as well. So on the one hand, you have people who were trying to do a good job of incorporating real living cultures into a property based on a video game. Mm-hmm. Then you have Manfred Powell, just I don't even know the king of cultural appropriation. Right. But he's also the villain. Exactly. And we have Laura, who goes into these places, and this is true of the second movie as well, has friends in these places mm-hmm. that she's traveling to, connects with people directly and with respect and appreciation. And then you have Manfred Powell, who's like, my house is like a fantasy from Aladdin, and I just take, 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 take everywhere I go. Right. And I see that as his character. Yeah. I feel like this can kind of be distilled into writing for a character in some places, but the real test of whether cultures are being respected or appropriated, you know, whatever you want to say, comes down to the production itself. And so I feel like in order to be objective about this, we would have to mm-hmm. understand how the movie, the people from Hollywood, the studios, interacted with the culture. Mm-hmm. And yes, we have two very oppositional forces. Laura, who seems very respectful, knows the language, takes the time to understand, has clearly done her research, things like that, versus Manfred Powell, who's awful. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, I feel like that's the real test is kind of how the production itself dealt with the culture since they went there. However, there are many cases in which the culture is kind of transported out and you have to wonder as to whether or not like that is respectful as well. You know, this kind of reminds me of something that I think about in relation to (laughs) jewelry. So there are many beautiful styles of jewelry, of various decorative arts Mm -hmm. that are easy for people to purchase as souvenirs. This is very like boho aesthetic type of thing, right? Like a lot of that is pulling from other cultures. And that comes from, you know, people traveling and bringing back things. And that became an aesthetic. I do not know what boho means, but I am with you. Bohemian. Bohemian. okay. Lifestyle. Sorry, I don't say the word bohemian enough to have an abbreviation for it. Well, okay. (laughs) This is just like if you go in a design magazine or whatever, and it's like boho chic. Okay. Whatever. Whatever. Because I'm in my design magazines. Hey, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway... But the question for me kind of is, like, where's the line between appreciation and appropriation? Mm -hmm. Well, not just for me. This is a big question for, like, everybody. And one of the things that I always come back to is, qui bono? You know, who is profiting Mm -hmm. from this? If I buy a pair of beaded earrings that are made by a Native American artist, great. I'm supporting the person who has the sort of cultural license, Mm -hmm. essentially, They're innovating on their traditional forms. You know, maybe it's a beading style that was learned from a great-grandmother, and then they're doing some cool new thing with it Mm -hmm. because they are a modern person. Great. On the other hand, if you go to Urban Outfitters and buy that same similar style that is some rando in Urban Outfitters, like, headquarters being like, you know what, people like these Native American beaded earrings. I guess we'll make some. So the reason I bring this up is related to what you're saying about where you're filming, how you're filming. If you're in Cambodia, you're paying people for the use of their places, their cultural imagery. 
that has got to be morally superior to just like replicating it in a studio yeah. and being like, we're going to find nearby people who are a similar look and cast them and pretend. Right. I was actually going to use the word invitation to some extent of when mm-hmm. you're being invited into a culture, whether it be in exchange for a good or a service or whatever it may be, or just because that person wants you to know more about their culture or wants their culture to be represented more completely in Hollywood. I feel like that plays a big part of it too, is just if you're being invited into the culture versus Mm -hmm. kind of inserting yourself and trying to, like you said, profit from the novelty of it. There was a point in history where things were exotic. Yeah. Because it's not our thing. And we're going to go take from this culture and bring it back and present it. And, oh, it's exotic. And people love exotic things. Right. It's fetishizing, really. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a really kind of core issue with just adventure movies generally. And I don't mean issue in just the negative way. I mean, this is a question. So it's so human to want to explore and travel. Mm -hmm. Something feeling exotic to you is not a bad thing. It means it's appealing that you want to go learn about this place and see what it's like to be there and meet the people who are there. I think it can. It doesn't necessarily imply that, but yes. Yes, exactly. So that's what I mean is like the desire to do that is human and healthy and connecting with other people in other places is how we learn that the way that we do something is not the only valid way and possibly not even the best way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you want to go expose yourself to other things. But on the other hand, you get this fetishizing the exotic or exoticizing things that shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Or I'm sure that there are people who have much better language around this than I do. But How do you tap into that human desire to see the new, the unexplored, to get out there and do it yourself? How do you balance that with sort of the armchair tourist thing of show me, let me enjoy it, let me take advantage of it without any actual direct experience or consequences or anything? So I think that's just a big question. It is a big question. And we'd love to hear from listeners, I think, as well about that, because not everybody can have the opportunity to get experiences that would inform them in such a way that they can have a really good understanding of a culture. And, you know, maybe the only exposure they get to it is kind of through that lens of Hollywood. And I think whoever has the lens, whoever's putting that in place has a big responsibility. And that's, I think, where the burden lies mostly, is if you're going to be broadcasting something to the world through your lens, you better make damn sure that that lens is spotless. Yeah. I mean, I would especially be interested to hear from people who have cultures that have been portrayed on film yes. and your thoughts on this. And how do you feel about fiction and how fiction should address the unknown? And I mean, just kind of all of I would be interested in sort of any thoughts from the specific to the very abstract. Absolutely. Hard left turn. <laughs> On a slightly different social justice issue, one thing I do appreciate about this movie, equal opportunity shower scenes. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Okay, Emily, so what you're trying to say is objectification (laughs) of people's bodies is our next topic. (laughs) Or no, you're just happy that they gave us two hot people in two hot showers. That is the the latter. Okay, okay, okay. Yes. I'm just happy that for once, it's not just, hey, look at this beautiful woman with rivulets of water running down her breasts. I also get to see Daniel Craig in the show. Yeah, I was happy for both. (laughs) One thing that I thought was funny that I wrote down, (laughs) this movie is so intent on telling you what it is. Mm. Hillary says, it's adventure time. Mm -hmm. Alex says, you're the Tomb Raider. Yes. 
Like, they want to make sure we know what's going on. And everybody in the movie theater clapped every time. Hey, it is the name of the movie! It's Adventure Time! Yay! Also, Laura is just so destructive in this. Yep. <laughs> that was like, something you pointed out. Is just like, she is destroying everything. Yep. We are very much so this belongs in a museum type people. And yeah. <laughs> to see, again, kind of talking about culture being represented well versus being destroyed. <laughs> I think we both kind of cringed at how much destruction there was. Obviously not real destruction, but still a disrespect by the characters for where they were. And that makes you hurt a little. Yeah. How did you feel about minor characters? I love to talk about that with movies, like who from the minor characters really jumps out to you. I'll start us off with one that we asked about during our watch of the film, mm -hmm. which is Mr. Wilson. I think you noted, like, his voice sounds really familiar. Yeah. Does he do any voice acting? And so this man's name is Leslie Phillips. He has done some voice acting. Not a ton of it, but what he has done is extremely notable. Did you happen to look this up? No, I didn't. So you don't know where you know him from? No, I don't. He is the voice of the sorting hat. That's it. Yes. That is it. Yes. Okay. And I think at the time you commented that he sounds like John Yeah, Hurt, a little bit. he kind of does. Yeah. Yeah. So certainly a notable, notable voice. That's funny. Fair. Yeah. I also just love Bryce. I really enjoy Bryce in this. I also really enjoy Bryce. And like you said, they have a relationship where clearly there's more to it than what we get in the film. The... I'm amused by my ignorance, you know, <laughs> who says that is, you know, kind of one of the shots that we get of Bryce, which betrays that your ignorance amuses me. Laura's been just gabbing <laughs> with him, talking to T. Yes. Oh, I just love that so much. I know I already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Yeah. Like, just to me, the, the cutest thing in the movie is that she went home from that conversation and then was like, Bryce, you will not believe what this fucker yep. said to me. Bryce, by the way, is Noah Taylor, the actor's name. Yes. But he has a lot of great moments. Yeah. I'm glad that they have a character like Bryce, and not just because it is an element of the games. To some extent, there's a character called Zip in the games that is kind of analogous to Bryce. But yeah, just that they have him represented. And this was also a very techie era, you know, where kind of tech was romanticized. It was in a lot of movies, hackers... Have you watched Hackers recently, by the no, way? No, I haven't. Should I? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, you really should. It's a trip. It's a lot of fun, but it is so weird. <laughs> but yeah, I really enjoyed that. And they made him a lovable character, too. Not just the nerdy guy. Like, yes, he doesn't have all of the physical side of things, but she clearly confides in him and loves him. And I enjoyed that. And he makes all those adorable little robots. He does. Just, like, and a little around trip his around. Yeah, his little pets. Yeah, and he's got his little trailer and he's got a little garden. Like, yeah. I just find him to be a very endearing character. He chooses not to live in the mansion so that he can have his own yes. little domain, which, yeah, is beautiful. Yeah, he's very lovable. I think he's very lovable. But speaking of sort of tech movies of this era, mm -hmm. of course, we've talked about hackers. And that is, I actually don't know for sure if that's where they met. But certainly that also stars her former husband, Johnny Lee Miller. Now, in a lot of the press for this movie, she refers to herself a couple of times as a geek or a dork coming into this and how she didn't feel physically prepared to play this role. Speaking of dorks, though, apparently Johnny Lee Miller <laughs> also was actually a big gamer and a fan of this game. So yep. there was a rumor at the time that she accepted the role to annoy him because he couldn't ignore her. But she apparently, of course, denied that. But she did jokingly say that, like, she hated Laura because Laura was the one keeping him up all night and not her, <laughs> which yes. I thought was pretty adorable. It is funny. And, you know, he, while not a, I don't know, 
big household name, has gone on to have quite a good career. I loved him in elementary. I don't know. I like him. I don't know much about him, but I like him. Yeah, I liked elementary as well. One of the things that I mentioned, since I like to kind of have these touch points from the beginning before we watch the movie and at the end, and I need to tie it all up in a little bow, I said Mm -hmm. at the beginning that one of the things that I remembered about this movie or that I associated with this movie was Weapon of Choice. Yeah. Why did I say that? Why did I think that? I have an idea, and it's because it is kind of from that same era, and it involves a lot of wire work, but it's not in the movie. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not. I think I'd swapped it out in my head with Speedballin' by Outcast. Yes, I think you probably did. Where in the beginning, you know, she is fighting the robot to this music, and then, you know, puts in Laura's mix, and something starts playing, and in my mind, the thing that started playing was Weapon of Choice, and it's not. It isn't. But you're not as wrong as you think you are. I'm not? Okay. You're not. Because I mentioned earlier the score and soundtrack drama. <laughs> Fatboy Slim were among the people on that Considered list. Considered of... for the role of Laura Croft? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. For scoring the movie. Oh, okay. Okay. So I don't know. Maybe you read that at some point. Or maybe it just is the same kind of zeitgeist type situation. I don't know. Yeah, but... maybe... Almost as wrong as you think you are, but not quite. Since watching the movie, though, I have been on a Fatboy Slim kick. I've been listening sure. to a lot of their music. <laughs> it was very good and just ahead of its time, way ahead of its time. I mean, it's a lot of fun yeah. to watch. Watch, listen to, mm-hmm. whatever. It's the same. Speaking of listening to, when she's doing the bungee ballet, which mm-hmm. I do want to talk a little bit more about because I have some good answers to questions about that. She's doing the bungee ballet. She's listening to the music. There's a weird record player. Do you remember this? A weird record player? Yeah. It's almost not recognizable as a record player, but it's a real thing. It's called the Clear Audio Master Reference Table, and it retails for $27,000. Jeez. So, a detail that no one except the richest people will appreciate. <laughs> they were probably trying to make it look very upscale or gaudy yes. or something, but it was just so far above everybody's heads yeah, well, that they were like, okay. Speaking of gaudy, you can get it gold plate. It's not a joke. <laughs> But, okay, I love some of the stunts, though. The bungee ballet, during our watch of it, we were asking, like, who came up with this? Where did this idea come from? And the answer is Simon West, the director, came up with it. And the way that he did was he was just thinking, what would somebody like her do to relax? Mm. And in his words, she's not going to play chess. She's not going to just watch TV. Right. What would she do? So this lovely, elegant, relaxing bungee ballet, which is the term that is used throughout every material. So bungee ballet. Okay. It was all her. No stunt performers were involved in that. They started testing it with stunt performers. She got out there, could do everything, and they were like, awesome. Yeah. (laughs) We'll just use you, which I thought was pretty impressive. And that kind of theme of like, well, we tried to have stunt people do it, but turns out Angie did it better, came up several times, including on when they're in the Cambodian temple scene with that big swinging Mm -hmm. log, basically. Mm -hmm. They had two different stunt doubles try to do that. They both got motion sickness and had trouble with the part where they stand up. Angie gets on there. No problem. The producer, that same guy, Lloyd Levin, was like, honestly, I was like, is this possible? How is this? <laughs> okay. How bad right. is that? Right? So that kind of thing came up a bunch of times. And they did use stunt performers as well, of course, because, you know, these people, no matter how skilled you are, you're still an actor. And yeah. part of what stunt actors, stunt performers do isn't just doing the stunt. It's making sure that it can be done safely. Yes. So just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Hollywood, or more so the media around movies, which I guess now includes us, can overly glorify actors doing stunts. Yeah. Now, 
Do we love to see it? Yes, we do. But it's not an at-all-cost situation. And it's not like if you're just impressive enough or just good enough, you can do it instead of the stunt people. Like their job is to make sure that things can be done safely. Mm -hmm. And this is something I learned watching the special features about Uncharted, that it's even when an actor is going to do a stunt, the stunt performers often test the stunt extensively first. Right. So you have to see them as a combination of stunt performers and safety experts. And I would imagine trainers to some extent too, because if you're physically capable to do a stunt, but you've never done it before and somebody has been trained in this industry, like hiring them on to be a teacher, to teach the actual actor how to do it safely, like that's money well, well spent, even if they're not the ones doing the stunt. And this is probably why so many actors who are very well established have stunt performers who consistently work with them essentially as a part of their ongoing team and Mm -hmm. you know again going back to uncharted you know tom holland has two guys that are his stunt guys that he always works with and in that context they were testing stunts and then teaching him how to do them yeah so you're absolutely right and i guess earlier on i kind of thought well you know you find stunt people who look like you and can move like you and that makes sense but it's not just that it's also this training aspect that you're describing in the same way you'd keep a physical trainer who really knows how to help you with your body. Mm -hmm. One of the stunts that most impressed me is (laughs) when they're in the Cambodian temple and she has to walk backwards across that Mm -hmm. ladder shooting guns. Yes, you were very impressed. And the rungs of the ladder are, yeah, I I still (laughs) the rungs of the ladder are very round. And she's wearing boots and walking backwards while shooting over a chasm. I just can't get over that. That, to me, is more impressive than a lot of things. Like, okay, bungee ballet. You're attached. You're spinning. Not a big deal. Backwards walking across a ladder, to me, is the most impressive stunt, I think, in all of this. One thing that should be mentioned is absent daddy John Voight. You know, that maybe isn't fair, but that is my understanding of their relationship. Yeah, I'm absent by death. No, no, oh, no, 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 oh, no, no. Oh, real life absent daddy. Real life Ooh, John Boyd. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was like, yeah, of course he's absent. He's dead in this movie. He's dead. <laughs> okay, yes. Real you mentioned John Boyd, real life. However, yes, thank you. Not dead. Please continue. He had to be asked to leave the set because he kept interrupting action sequences because he thought she wasn't safe enough. Mm. It's also like, bro, you're an actor. This is not professional. Yeah. This is her career. Like, I would be so mad if dad came into my place of work and then acted like a protective dad. I'd be like, you are undermining me at every turn. <laughs> leave yeah Um, thankfully he hasn't i don't remember him doing that so dad if you're listening thanks (sighs) speaking of sets they destroyed the final set that the explosion like they actually blew it all up and just had to do a ton of coverage really yeah huh okay but speaking of things that did survive angelina jolie has gone on record to say that she has kept the holsters that she used in the film at home (laughs) and yes it is a cherished memento for her Yeah. Also, I meant to say, I just realized I never got around to it, but back when we were talking about Cambodia and cultural respect and just sort of participating locally when you're at a place shooting, one of the things that initially got Angelina Jolie to accept this movie was the travel. Hmm. And she said that publicly a number of times, like, I just wanted to get to go all these places. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, famously fell in love with Cambodia. She actually went back and briefly lived there to help clear some minefields. And then, of course, met and adopted her first child, Maddox, there. Mm -hmm. So that culture really resonated with her. She loved being there so much so that she adopted a child. Yeah, you love to see it. Yeah, you love to see it. One thing that we haven't talked about yet that I wanted to mention 
When we're in Siberia, mm-hmm. <laughs> Laura's coat is so weird. The fur on the outside of the hood makes me nuts, and I hate it. There's several other weird things about it. Okay. So, like, on the one hand, it looks kind of cool, I guess. On the other hand, like you mentioned, the fur is on the outside of the hood. Mm-hmm. It goes down her back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Too. Also, there's a fur cuff on only one sleeve. Did we confirm that it wasn't, like, turned out on one side and turned in on the other side? I mean, I don't have a great way to confirm that, but I will say that in the shot that I'm thinking yeah. of, there's a large fur cuff up part of one sleeve, oh, okay. and then the other sleeve is cut quite closely to her arm. Gotcha. So I don't think She so. needed the power of the wolf in her right arm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I need the power of the wolf in my right arm, on my head, and on my back. Yes. One thing that I need to check on is how similar the outfit that she's using in the movies is to that that is used in the first game where she travels to Peru. And there is a lot of snow and ice. And obviously she is in this very stylish coat. It's very flowy, a little maybe too flowy for for being out in the cold. (laughs) But I'm wondering if it is them trying to pay homage to that or if it's just a costume designer gone rogue. (laughs) I love the idea of costume designers gone rogue. (laughs) I'm going to make it all look so good. <laughs> you know, I would watch that reality show 100%. Me too. 100%. <laughs> you know, if we ever do merch, I want to make like so you know how when you work on a movie, they give the cast like a jacket or a yeah, shirt yeah, yeah, or yeah. something or not cast, I mean crew, I'm sorry. I want to make fake crew merch for a fake show called Costume Designers Gone Rogue. That would be very funny. Yes. Oh, I love oh, it. That would be fantastic. Okay, I want it. Okay. Now. <laughs> I thought of something too while you were talking that I forgot, which is they didn't initially plan for Cambodia for those scenes. Oh, I did read about this. I know where you're going with this, and I'm not going to spoil it. (laughs) Well, it's coming up fast. Uh, They originally planned for the Great Wall of China, which just was logistically a challenge at that time. I think they just weren't able to make it work, Mm -hmm. but did come back to that in the second movie. Mm Because we do get Great Wall of China scenes in Cradle of Life. Yep. So that's kind of fun. But while in Cambodia, one of my favorite just little trivia facts was they have those scenes where she's driving her Land Rover around in the mm-hmm. jungle. And apparently they had to do so many takes of that because snakes kept falling Oh my the gosh. <laughs> Why did it have to be snakes? Quote, snakes and other wildlife kept falling through the open top of the car. <laughs> there actually is a shot of her driving through the forest where something falls in and she just like grabs it and throws it back out. I think it's just a twig. Really? But it might have been a snake. It might have been a snake. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't know that they got that, like that that was in the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go back and like freeze frame, just like frame by frame. Is this a snake? Yeah. It looked very small. I assumed it was yeah. a twig, but snakes also come in very small. They do. And I know this because my dog keeps trying to eat them. (laughs) Final trivia fact. Okay. Well, final pair of trivia facts. We have a number of people in this movie who have worked together before or since. Mm -hmm. Ian Glynn, who plays Manfred Powell, and Noah Taylor, who plays Bryce, appear together in... Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Exactly. Good job. One for one. Okay. Also, this one you're not going to get. No offense. I'm sure. (laughs) <laughs> Daniel Craig has worked with Julian Rhymes Tut, who is quickly rising in the ranks of our most desirable guest. Seriously, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. I want to talk to him so okay. badly. So Daniel, Daniel okay. Craig and Julian Rhymes yeah, Tut yeah. worked together twice before this. Okay. 
1999 film called The Trench okay. and in another 2001 called Sword of Honor. So this really? is the third time that they've worked together. Yeah. Man, I want to watch those now. Right? I want to watch everything. I know. That's our problem, isn't it? We've, pull- <laughs> we've pulled out at least three things from this episode that we want to watch, all of which include Daniel Craig. <laughs> I mean, I just think that that shows that we have good taste. I agree. Okay, so I lied. Oh, it's not the final fact? fact. Okay. <laughs> Simon West, the director, mm-hmm. he turned down a movie that you will have heard of to direct this movie. Do you want to take a guess? It came out the same year, if that helps at all. I don't really want to take a guess, but I will make a judgment as to whether or not he made the right choice after I hear it. <laughs> I think I know what you're going to pick. He turned down the chance of directing Black Hawk Down to make this movie. Really? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. I mean, listen. No, I'm going to defend him on this one. I don't care. Black Hawk Down, I'm sure, is probably like the more reputable film, but... For all the reasons that we love this movie, I'm sure that he was drawn to it as well. The locations and the people and getting to see Dino Craig without a shirt. Mm -hmm. All of that really does factor into it. So He got to see that firsthand, no less. Exactly. I'll defend it. (laughs) You know, listen, here's what I'll say. Does the fact that he made that choice give me respect for his decision making? No. Is it for the best? Yes. Yes. I think it is... For the best that he did not direct Black Hawk Down, and I think it is probably for the best that he directed this movie. Yes. I would be absolutely fascinated to see what this movie would have been like with someone else directing it. I am happy with the end result. I enjoy the end result. There's some problems, but who cares? It's a lot of fun, and I think she did an amazing job, and I'll always love it. Yep, (laughs) absolutely. How critical can I really be of the director? Okay. Well, with that, I am out of facts and interesting tidbits. Do you have anything else you want to say before we talk about our next episode? That's all I got. Okay, Emily. So for our next movie, though our modern understanding has changed about this time period, we are going to be jumping back not 10 or 20 years, but 200 million years (laughs) for Jurassic Park. Dinosaurs! (laughs) Dinosaurs! I love it! I'm so excited. Me too. You have dinosaurs. You have Laura Dern. You have Sam Neill. You have... Hold on to your butts. You have uh, Samuel L. Jackson again. We know we love him. Uh, Oh, I'm so excited. Correct. And you have some really important moments in movie-making history in terms of the special effects, the animatronics that are fused into this, and... The intersection of all of these things, and so I'm really, really excited to talk about it on the next episode with you. There's some real, like, movie magic shit. That's the beauty of this movie, is from the performances to the lighting, music, set design, like, it really is such a great movie for talking about all the pieces of how a movie is made and how they can come together to really deliver an experience. Yeah. So, I am stoked. Yes. All right, well, we will talk about all that and more on the next episode of The Adventurelings. The Adventurelings. Join us. Oh, and I fucked up immediately. (laughs) Okay, we're good. (laughs) I am recording. (laughs) My intonation is very weird. But you were less not alive than I was. I was about to be alive. Exactly. I think we can cut this. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I think we can cut that whole section. Hartfield House. Hot. Hold on. I'm going to redo that. 
kills Powell and gets the fuck out of Dodge as the whole chamber chamber collapses. Uh, and the Illuminati in the Illuminati. God, I am all over the place here. And tell me that the legs cut off. (laughs) 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 I still think that every time it's my favorite joke. It's it's genuinely Mason invented that joke when he was six years old, and it is I'll be back shortly, and I don't mean with my legs cut off. And I swear to God, I still think it every time. Somebody is going to be back shortly, or we're going, you know, whatever. Like, I literally think that every time somebody says shortly. It's my favorite joke. I usually have a glass of brandy or something, and I'm swirling it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very villainous.